Welcome to the Jam Session Radio Hour. This is your host, John Landis. I uh, Tonight we're bringing you something which I think is kind of special. It's an interview with uh, John Arabagan. John Arabagan is a well-known uh, saxophone player, plays uh, tenor, plays soprano, um, and has had a very interesting career. Went to Juilliard um, and uh, Manhattan School of Music um, around in the early 2000s. Um, now lives in Chicago. Uh, has played out here um, not too long ago. Uh, Joel Chris set him up at uh, at a uh, gig during the pandemic at the Stephen Talk House, and thank you to the Stephen Talk House for that. Um, and he played with um, a bunch of interesting people there. Played with Ray Anderson, um, trombone, Matt Mitchell on keys, Dan Weiss on drums, and Chris Lightcap on bass, which I believe is a quintet that he is now frequenting. Uh, had played at Smalls the night before. Um, so let's let's listen to this interview with John Arabigan, and then I'll come back and swing back and tell you a little bit more of insights that I have about him. So here's our interview from uh, July 1st, 2021 with John Arabigan. So I'm here with John uh, Arabigan. Hello, John. Hi, John. How's it going? Good, good, good. And John um, is, uh, well, I'd say to, to at least to the, to the jam session, He's one of the people that, that is newer to the jam session, uh, jam session, but uh, he's a great addition. I'm sure he's going to continue to be a person that we'll, um, we'll have with us. One of the things that uh, John's going to be doing with us, and we'll talk more about this later, is the Hamptons Jazz Fest, and we'll talk about that. But John, um, you uh, tell us how you found out about the, the jam session. Who you know? I mean, besides oh, okay. Me. Well, I've known Joel Chris for, for years. He's been a great mentor. He's been a great supporter of mine, and He's shown up to some of my tiniest gigs and some of my largest gigs. So I've known Joel for a while. I've stayed at his place. He's been a beautiful friend. So um, he actually sponsored a show of my new quintet, uh, which features Ray Anderson and Matt Mitchell and Chris Lightcap and Dan Weiss. Uh, at, he featured, he um, sponsored a show of ours at Smalls last December. So December in the middle of the pandemic and stuff. So we were all apprehensive, but we were like, no, let's do this. Smalls is a beautiful place to play. It would just be great to get to play with live human beings again after so long. And then after the day after that show, we also came out to to the East End out there so and played over there too. So we made like a little mini tour out of it. And it's just beautiful vibe out there, beautiful scenery. and and So that was December in the Hamptons? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was yeah, it like? In the middle was of the it, pandemic, too. Was it a chilly day? Uh, it, it, it seemed like? fine. It seemed all yeah. right. I mean, we were we were we were focused in the music, and so yeah. the weather didn't really deter us from that. Right. And so you played at Stephen Talk House. That's right. You no. Know, and with no audience, but just to whatever techies were there and whatever uh, people there that made it possible, with yeah. the group that you described. Now that that group that that includes um, anybody from out out this way. Well, Ray Anderson doesn't live that far, um, so he had a he had a nice easy drive, and then the rest of the guys are Brooklyn Brooklyn guys. So Ray, um, he's a trombone player. That's right. And he's connected to Stony Brook. That's right. He's like, I think he's like part of the jazz program at Stony Brook. Yeah, he's one of the f- the few full time jazz yeah. guys out there. And is, is and he, he somebody he, that you've known and played with for a while? Yeah, he's a. I mean, he's a living legend, Ray. He's played with the entire history of the of the music. I've been a fan of his since high school. Um, a, a friend of mine in high school started 
buying some of his records. And I was like, who's this guy? And then it turns out that he's played a lot with someone I sought out when I moved to New York, Barry Alchul, great drummer. And him, him and, and Barry have a long history together. And I formed a trio several years ago with Barry and bass player Mark Elias to play some of my music. And Ray and Mark have a long history as well. So I've played on and off with, with Ray, like sat in in different groups and he sat in some groups of mine and I've had him on my weeks at the stone when I've done week long residencies there. So I've always wanted to have a, a working group with, with Ray in it and this, this new quintet. Um, it's just a beautiful amalgamation of personalities. And so to get to play two nights in a row at Smalls and at Stephen's Hawk House was, was, was really great last December. So the set that you did at Smalls, how similar was it to what you did at the Talk House? I mean, it was the same compositions that I wrote, but these guys took it in two completely different places. Uh-huh. I just remember going home, driving home laughing, because I was just like, I wrote these eight tunes, and I, if I had never heard it, either any of the music before, if I went home from both of those sets, I would have thought that they were completely different books of music. And that was, well, that's that's fascinating in and of itself. So that's... That's a product of how you guys played together 24 hours apart, how th- how you felt differently. and Or is it is it like, would it have been Ray taking it in a certain direction or you taking it in a certain direction that was decidedly different? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the compositions were written specifically for this quintet, for these guys. Um, I won a 2020 Chamber Music America New Jazz Works grants, which I was very thankful for. And... I, during the pandemic, I spent a lot of it in South Dakota with my in-laws as we fled New York when New York started shutting down and everything. And so when I was out in this canyon out in South Dakota, I, that I found that I practiced that for like hours every day for several months, um, I started writing the music for this, for this grant. And I knew I wanted these four particular human beings and I knew what they, And I know what they can do with the music and I know all the directions they can go in. So the music is really specific in certain regards. I I wrote really specific things, but there's, but each piece has large sections that are open to interpretation. (laughs) And, and those sections really from night to night really just took off in, in a completely different (laughs) vibes. Yeah. So, and we also did a short tour in March this past March gearing up to record the record uh, for this grant. So again, each of, each of those nights were completely different as well. So, so what, fascinating. what's the relationship between the tunes that you played that night and at Smalls and what you did in South Dakota? Well, I, so I found this Canyon just a few minutes outside of town and I was practicing a lot of extended technique, tenor saxophone and soprano saxophone stuff. I was practicing a lot of standards. I was, pra- I was working on some composition out there just doing a myriad of, of things that finally having the time and the space to do that, uh, the Canyon allowed me to do. Um, the focus of this, this is the third installment of my Outright series, which I started back in 2006, I think. Um, and the, fo- the point of the series is each record, I take a different instrument that I play. So the very first record was alto saxophone. Uh, the one we did in 2013 was tenor saxophone. And this one's focused uh, primarily on exclusively on soprano saxophone, which I spent a lot of time in the canyon working on. And the the vibe is that each tune that I write 
um, caters to these really creative musicians. So there's a lot of open spaces, like I said, but the written material is all dedicated to a different master of that instrument that I'm playing. So this album, I was thinking a lot about Steve Lacey. I was thinking a lot about Roscoe Mitchell. I was thinking a lot about Evan Parker. I was thinking a lot about Sidney Bechet. Um, I was thinking a lot about John Coltrane, of course. And so the, the different comp, and then of course, the brown saxophone is notoriously a, a smooth jazz instrument. So I had to incorporate some, some elements of, of that as a surprise, but um, yeah, the, the compositions of, of this record each are tributes to different heroes on that instrument for me. And so I funnel that tribute aspect and the, you know, the, the different styles and the different eras of all these masters through the beauty and the, you know, invention and creativity of these four musicians I, I picked to be on the record. And um, so when you were playing in the Canyon, you're saying, so you, you, you were playing different instruments, the, uh, you know, that you mentioned, not just soprano. Yeah. Right. And, um, and then when you, when you did your gig at the talk house in smalls, you were also playing just soprano or, or? For, for this group, for this ensemble, it's a, it's a soprano based uh, quintet, okay. which is why, which is why Ray Anderson on trombone was a perfect okay. foil for it. It's just a great, um, timbrely. It's just a great combination for me. Yeah. Um, but I was working on, uh, I, there's another album out uh, in the works that's coming out next year that's Quartet. So it's that same group without Ray um, with Miles Akadaki on a couple of tunes on guitar and Adam O'Farrell on a couple of tunes on trumpet. I wrote those tunes out there in the canyon. And also there's an album that's actually coming out tomorrow, July 2nd. Um, that it's a solo tenor saxophone record that I did uh with Charlie Parker in mind, uh, his centennial birthday came and went during the time I was out there. And when I was working on some time and I was working on some sound thing, sound things and, and working on some standards. And I just couldn't stop thinking about his influence on the jazz world and the improvisational world in, in whole. So, uh, as my time in the Canyon was winding down as this, the fall started coming and the days were getting colder and as we were preparing the leaves out the code, I said, you know, I need to record something to document my time from this beautiful place. And the first idea I came up with was like, okay, I've never done an album of standards. I've definitely never done an album dedicated to another composer's tunes or his vibe. So as I was thinking about Charlie Parker for months, I felt this was the right time to do that. So uh, this album coming out tomorrow is called Bird with Streams. I brought out a, a portable rig um, and microphone and stuff and just hiked around and found different spots with different kinds of reverb uh, for several days in a row. And the result is this album of mostly Charlie Parker or Charlie Parker adjacent tunes called Bird with Streams. Is that, um, that's, uh, that's so cool. Is that, did you record anything else out there that will make its way into um, an album? Uh, yeah, I mean, actually the, the other two, this quintet album, this outright record called Recharge the Blade is going to be coming out sometime by the end of the year or early next year. And then the quartet album is going to be called Rising Sun. And that's coming out next year, sometime mid next year. Those compositions were all written in, in that canyon. Okay. Um, but as far as recording wise, I really focused when I brought out that portable rig, I was really focused on, on that. There's there some things, some practice things that I recorded for myself, some 
some weird sound things mixing with birds and and the canyon and itself and the streams that were down there. Uh, but that was just for me and, and experimenting and, and trying to grow from it. So, this, so you're out there in this canyon. You're playing this horn. You're well, you're, you're like sitting on a rock. <laughs> yeah, sitting, standing, uh, hiding out under under trees. I each day I picked a different place to go to. It was uh-huh. it was fascinating the different things that I would think of and the different ways I would play just from different shade, different um, different viewpoints of the canyon, different reverb bouncing off the other side of the thing. You know, it, it was fascinating for me. It was a it was a great. I mean, despite the world losing its mind in a lot of different ways and and the pandemic raising everything, um, it, there was some of those days were some of the most productive and beautiful days I've had in a long time. What is uh, and how do you feel about the sound that you got um, that's going to be in this album? Bird was it Bird with Streams? Yeah, Bird with Streams. I mean, you know, I was I was I was really good challenging myself to to try to change my sound and dig deeper into it and 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 use the outdoors as a, as a bouncing off point. So it's, I'm, I'm it's different. My tenor sounds different than, than it is in it on any other record, but I was really going for something and I'm, I'm proud to have documented it. And I'm really happy that I got to put down on tape, like my time out there in the canyon, cause it's something I'll never forget. So, I mean, I hope people listen to it and I hope people like it. And I hope people studying Charlie Parker's music will include that record and, in, in their listening at some point, but I mean, that, this record was really for me and to get to document what was going on out there. And if I ever revisit it myself, I'll remember all the emotions and the crazy time that <laughs> pandemic filled 2020 had to offer. And when the recording's done, then do you, do you then master that or you send somebody else to, to play with it? At, uh... Yeah. I mean, I, I recorded it myself. I edited it myself. And I started mixing it myself, but you know, I, I'm not, I'm not an expert at, on any of that. The other end, so uh, I had my good buddy Ben Rubin, who's mixed some of my records before. I had him mix it. I had a great musician and and master engineer Nate Wood uh, master it. So I'm I'm extremely happy with wow. how it sounds wow. and how it came out. So right. it's its own thing, and and that's what a record should be. And so I love Have all you my done records. Any previous again. albums that were just you? Man, actually, I have a longstanding love for solo albums. <laughs> it's a for some reason I, I really love solo albums. So this is actually my third solo album. Um, my very first solo album is called "In Action." Is an action, and it's all sopranino saxophone in a church. So not as much reverb, I guess, as a canyon, but but it was a reverberant space, and it's all really extended techniques on a tiny saxophone. So. Probably my most experimental record I've ever done. Yeah, I was probably, listening to some of that this morning. That's that's uh, that's very experimental. I mean, yeah, that, probably my favorite record I've ever done because really? I really it was it was the most challenging, most soul wrenching, most soul searching record I've ever done, and I'm just huh. I, I could never recreate a record like that. So I'm glad that it's recorded and it it is what it is, and I'm very happy with it. Tell, tell then, us the name of the, of the album again. It's action in an action. It's called it's called in action is an action.
You're listening to WLIW-FM, 88.3 FM in Southampton, New York. Heard on WLIW.org, O-R-G slash radio. Um, and this is the Jam Session Radio Hour, and tonight we have an interview of John Irabagon. Yeah. And then the other solo record I've done, it came out in 2019. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the second CD of a two-CD set in, entitled Invisible Horizon. Yeah. Uh, the first disc of that record is it's string quartet with Matt Mitchell playing piano. It's a six movement piece that I wrote um, with some improvisation, but it's a lot of composition. It's probably the most serious compositional. And so that's tons of reverb too. But but I have a love for these obscure saxophones, and the mezzo soprano saxophone is a, is basically a shrunken alto saxophone. It's in the key of F, so it's a whole step smaller. It looks like someone took an alto saxophone and threw it in the dryer and shrunk it a little bit, uh-huh. but it's got a beautiful, unique sound. It's got a double reed quality to it along with an alto and kind of a soprano saxophone thing. So when I found one of those uh, a few years ago, I became fascinated with it and, and devoted a definite year or two of my life to like trying to hone into whatever that instrument's trying to say. And this record Invisible Horizon kind of, showcases the mezzo soprano saxophone in a solo set i was listening to also some of uh, an album i think it's called perpetual motion oh yeah and yeah that's yeah. a record that i co-led with a really great friend of mine that i've known for what 23 years now sylvan reflet he's a great tenor saxophonist composer and band leader in in paris france and we we won a french american cultural exchange grant from the mid-atlantic arts foundation back in 2013 to, to rearrange and derange uh, compositions by the great nomadic composer um, Moondog. And so Perpetual Motion is our concert uh, of all Moondog tunes. And in fact, we loved doing that whole project together so much. So we, ever since then we were like, okay, we have to do another project and this time uh, our own compositions. Mm-hmm. So last, so actually in 2020, in January, 2020, we met up in Budapest and recorded a record called Rebellions. And that record is Sylvan Reflet, myself, uh, Sebastian Bozat on bass from, from, Paris, um, from France and Jim Black on drums, who's been a hero of mine for forever. So mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. super glad to have gotten to record with him. And Sylvan and I took uh, speeches and recordings of speeches for like really pertinent uh, social justice issues at the time. So this is like from late 2019, early 2020, um, climate change, women's rights, uh, you know, equal rights for voting, gun control. And we wrote music specifically for specific speeches that we called from the internet and from our histories uh, to, to co-mingle with our music and, and recorded that record. Uh, it's out on BMC Records out of out of Budapest, and we're extremely happy with that. Great. I noticed that um, that you have your own label, right? So tell us about why that happened, uh, what's it done for you, and and what the motivation is there. Yeah, um, my record label is called Arabagast Records. Started in 2012, and um, I was talking about my out, this outright series that I that I'm finishing the third installment of. When I first decided to 
put out my own record under my own name. It was the very first outright record, uh, which is me on alto saxophone, Russ Johnson on trumpet, Chris Davis on piano, Jeff Davis on drums, and Ivan Opsvik on bass. And I was extremely proud of the album and just loved the results. And I loved that group. And I sent it to 50 labels, I think. Or I sent it to 49 labels or something like that. And either I got no response or I got emails back saying like, who the hell are you? Why would I put out this record? You know, like all these things. Some people would be like, yeah, the record's cool, but we have a full roster. So there's just all these rejections. And during that process, I'm like, okay, I know that I love this record. I'm, I'm just super happy. I, this record is, does not exist anywhere else. These sounds and this combination of things just doesn't exist. So I'm just going to put it out myself. And a good buddy of mine had released records on the Innova recordings label out of uh, Minnesota. And he said, you know what, before you just decide to self-release it, send it to Innova. Maybe they'll put it out. And Innova loved it. And they're like, we're going to put this thing out. So I was super happy to have some support from Innova and, and have, have that album out there. But I was already almost dead set on, on starting my own label to put out my music. Cause man, my music's weird, I guess mostly. And, and, you know, maybe it's difficult. I could see why it would be difficult commercially for some record label to want to take a chance on one of my records. So I get it. Um, so a few years later, I decided, you know what, I'm down to, be a part of this whole process. I wanted to have control of the artwork. I wanted to have control of the, the mix and the mastering sounds. I wanted to have control of the, the order of tunes on the record. And I've had a couple experiences myself with, with record labels changing things or doing weird things with the artwork or whatever. But a lot of my friends mostly have had really strange experiences with, with labels changing things around that didn't fulfill their artistic vision. So when I was putting out, I was putting out two records simultaneously, a really straight ahead record called Behind the Sky with Tom Harrell and Luis Perdomo and Yasushi Nakamura and Rudy Royston. And simultaneously, I was releasing a record called I Don't Hear Nothing But the Blues, volume two, which was my completely avant-garde band with, with Mike Pride on, Pride on drums and... Uh, Met, you know, heavy, like metal guitar player, Mick Barr. And so I was like, man, there's gonna be no label that wants to deal with these things. So I was just like, okay, now's the time to start my own label. And I'm super glad I did it. I've learned a lot about the music business, both good and bad. I've learned a lot about being responsible for my own music, my own vision. And I'm just happy to have those things out in the world. You know, it's not a, I'm not going to retire on a yacht on the, in the South coast of Italy with it or anything, but that's not really the point anyway. So um, especially these days now that was 2013, but now in 2021, like it's even more viable to own your own label as the major labels have, have dissipated as social media has taken over as having your own websites become more and more normal as the distribution change uh, chains and, and, you know, the download links and stuff have all changed. It just makes more sense to, for for a lot of people, it makes more sense to have control of your own music. So some of the albums that you've mentioned, like um, uh, the um, uh, the Bird with Streams, is that going to be on a Rabagast? Yep, that's on my own label. It's coming out tomorrow. It's on my Bandcamp page. If you go to Bandcamp.com and go to John Arabagon, and it'll be the first thing up there. Uh huh. 
but you, you, at the same time, uh, you're, you're still recording with other labels. Not everything is going on Arabagast. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a sideman on a lot of people's, in, in a lot of people's bands. I'm fortunate enough to get to be a part of a lot of different things. So that Rebellions band I co-lead with Sylvan, uh, that's on BMC. Um, I'm on this new record, this new massive six CD box set uh, from a band called Snark Horse. It's led by Matt Mitchell and Kate Gentile. Uh, that record's coming out in a few weeks on Pi Recordings. So I'm still fortunate enough to be on on other labels. And, and you know, I'm I'm thinking maybe at some point if the right label comes along, I I might try to record for. And if the if the feeling is mutual, I might try to put out a record or two on other labels just to keep it fresh and keep it interesting. But I'm glad to have started my own thing, and I'm also glad to have some of my friends on my label too. Um, I play in a group called the Uptown Jazz Tentet, which is myself and a lot of, and and nine other Juilliard graduates. Um, And they write and compose and arrange amazing straight ahead jazz music. And which, you know, this, this band sounds like its own thing and is unique in today's landscape, even though the music's really straight ahead. It's, it's, it's really fascinating to, to see in such a well-trod kind of music, how people can still have their own voice. So those two, two of those records are out on my own label. Great trumpet player, Brandon Lee has a record out on my label. There's a fascinating solo contrabass clarinet record uh, by Josh Sinton that's on my label. And there's also a great Madison, Wisconsin-based baritone player named Anders Vano, who's been a friend of mine for years. And he's got a series of five albums called The State of the Baritone on my label too. So I'm very, I'm trying to be supportive of people around me trying to create a home for creative music. So when you, when something's on your, on your label, on, on the Arabagast label, you have a responsibility to whoever that is, right? You take that on uh, yourself to, to get that out there, right? To distribute it with whatever participation they have so is that a network that you build or you built for yourself how does that work yeah i mean i yeah i think like i said i think this distribution and physical products and stuff in 2021 it's starting to be be really questionable if that's viable (laughs) for better or for worse but luckily since i've started the the label like seven eight years ago i've built up a little bit of a distribution thing i'm still trying to be a musician full-time and and play and i haven't I'm, I'm, I haven't tried changing my career to, to focus on the music thing, the, the, right. the, the label thing. So my, my buddies and these people who have records out, they understand it's, it's not, they, they've got a lot to do with it. They have to stay proactive with it. Right. I'm not trying to take over the world with, with the label, uh-huh. but, but they do get the benefits of some of the history that I have and, yeah. and the continuing growth I have with some labels and some, distribution and some critics and and things like that yeah so it sounds like that um it sounds like you've created this or you're 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 part of this network of musicians and people and i'm sure that grows and changes and morphs and stuff and maybe a lot may trace back to juilliard or you know your roots uh before that and i take it and this is kind of a question but that is are you typical in that respect for other musicians that you know that they tend to have you know a a, a network uh their own tribe that they kind of work within 
and that gets you, you know, the sidemen work that you do, the side work and all that stuff. So a lot of it is, and is that, a, that's, I assume it's a good thing, but is it a constraining thing? And how does that, how does that work in the business now? Yeah. I mean, everyone's got their, their, their scene, their click, their tribe. And um, some tribes are more welcoming than others. And and, uh-huh. and, and some are, are, it's really tough to break into that. You know, I've just been lucky to, to meet some really great musicians and, and those musicians have opened up the pathways to other musicians. And it's, it's really about trying to be consistent with the music that you want to make and being able to figure out what that music is that you want to make mm-hmm. and not just being a, a work, work, a working musician mm-hmm. um, for me anyways. And when I first started getting to play a lot, it was more about trying to pay the rent and trying to survive. Right. And as I've been lucky enough to get to play with some, some really great groups and, and tour semi consistently since uh, until the pandemic hit uh, with that, luxury came like okay well now i can i can afford to hone in and try to say something unique for myself and um you want to be around musicians that think that same way and try to make music with those kinds of musicians that are thinking more about the music and thinking about creativity and spontaneity over some careerist or um you know right. some fame seekers or whatever but that's just me and and there's no right or wrong and i'm just i'm so fortunate to have been in bands with people like mary halverson and dave douglas and mm-hmm. ralph alessi and you know barry Altschul. right and i hope to and peter evans and keep get the i'm hoping to keep getting to play with people of that caliber and people people with those parameters of openness and, and creativity because that's the most important thing to me if I if I needed to be a millionaire or something like that, I definitely wouldn't have gotten into music. So the the payoff of going into music is getting to explore this and, and create in the moment. And that's yeah. the most beautiful thing.
You are listening to WLIW FM, 88.3 FM in Southampton, New York. Also heard on WLIW.org slash radio. You're listening to the Jam Session Radio Hour. And tonight is our interview with John Irabigan. And so that uh, that's that kind of defines two, you know, uh, dramatically different directions. Maybe maybe not, but uh, for your for your taste, and um, are you is that again are are you atypical in in the fact that you explore, you know, music from one end of that spectrum to the other? Yeah, I, yeah, I, don't, I feel like current generation and the next generation and the next generation after that, it's going to become more and more common. It's just like. You know, I the the iPod generation is like you can you can switch from Zanakis to Louis Armstrong to you know in in the click of a button in a millisecond. Yeah. So so I just feel like that's a natural progression for the globalization of of human beings <laughs> and music in general. So for me, it doesn't. I, man, I, I'm the same person trying to blow over 45 minutes nonstop on nothing but the blues and playing as straight ahead and, and respectful as I can on, on behind the sky. I'm the same, I'm the same generator. Mm -hmm. So to me, it it doesn't seem that drastic, but I've had to learn from, (laughs) from, from years of being not realizing that, but seeing reactions and negative reviews and, and, and weird positive reviews, even that, you know, this, the music that I make can be completely drastic to, to different ears. And that's fine. And it's, and it's cool. I think it's a, I think it's, a, it's cool. Everyone's got where they're coming from. And I just happen to be blessed or cursed with loving all these different kinds of music. I, I love Kralis just as much <laughs> as I love like Kenny Barron's music. So mm-hmm. whatever that means to me, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's rare, but I think it's becoming less and less rare. And, and I feel like generations from now, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty much the norm because that's what's going to be demanded, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote down a phrase um, in preparation that I think comes from your bio or one of the news articles where they quote uh, in describing you as um, an uncompromising artist and uh, and an intellectual. I know that sounds kind of a feat, but <laughs> it sounds to me what drives your, a lot of what drives your interest is, you know, not necessarily the... Um, you know, the monetary success, just whatever your taste. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm excited to try to hear um, different combinations of stuff. I was just teaching a lesson and we were talking about, um, we were talking about Lester Young and like, okay, Lester Young would play this over if he's in, in tenor, the B flat key of G and Lester Young, we, we were playing one of his favorite famous solos and he plays this G pentatonic scale up and down. And my student was working on impressions and I'm like, well, you could use that same G pentatonic scale. So what would that sound like if you tried to play like Lester Young material over impressions? And she was just like, what? You can't do that. That's like completely different era. So I tried to take a solo sounding and and with the vibe of Lester Young, but over impressions and somehow like Lester Young and Coltrane commingled in my solo. And at the end of my chorus, I just started laughing. I'm like, I've never tried to do that before. And most people probably wouldn't ever even care to, to try that. But for me, I find that invigorate, invigorating. And I find I get some energy from combining this, these different eras or coming up. It doesn't even have to be different eras. It's just like juxtaposing different parts of music that I love 
the, this this expansive music that I love. Yeah. And like just seeing, just rolling the dice and just attempting to see if anything fun or valid or artistic comes out of it. Yeah. Um, it's it's all about the journey and and life's too long and there's too many hardships to to take music overly seriously. I'm deathly seriously about my study of it, but when it comes to actually playing and stuff, you got to have some fun with it. Right. And so, man, like me getting to try to play. So then I'm like trying to play some Lester Young over impressions and I'm like, okay, well, what's next? Like, let me try some Coleman Hawkins and trying to play like Coleman Hawkins on impressions is it's a mind melder <laughs> melter. Right. <laughs> and so these are the kinds of things that, that, that give me some energy. And, uh, and I think, yeah, my whole idea is to try to just combine a lot of different things that I love and, funnel it through me and whatever voice I'm trying to find and, and see if it can come up with something cool. So when did you go to Juilliard? Uh, I moved to New York in 2001, right before the, the nine, before nine 11 happened. And I went to Manhattan school of music and got a master's there for two years. And right after then I got an artist diploma at Juilliard. So we're looking at 2003 to 2005. Okay. It's been a while. You have, you have co uh, colleagues from both schools. Yeah, um, music from and Juilliard. And see that, and that's it's been perfect for me because, like, you know, it, it's tough to make generalizations, obviously, and not everyone fits into these things. But I, I still play with, and tour with, and record with uh, musician friends of mine from Juilliard and from Manhattan School of Music, and it's just been so beautiful to to spend time with these great creative artists and pick their brains, and and try to get inside their heads about what their philosophies on music are, what, what works, what doesn't work because these, because a lot of these people's ideas are completely opposite. But I love the music that all these, that all this myriad of people are making. So in my mind, I, I love the, the discrepancies because I'm into all this different kind of music. So, so certain ones in my band are going to appeal to certain ones of them and certain bands yeah. are not. But that's, I just love getting the philosophies and the, the souls of each of all these anyone who has dedicated themselves to an art or life or anything, you can, you can pick up a lot of valuable info and insight from like trying to find out who they are for real. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about visual art while you're talking because yeah. you're obviously an artist and, and um, unless it's some kind of uh, inten intentional collaborative effort of a group of artists, it seems like, Art, you know, visual arts as opposed to what you do as a musician, you know, it's a little bit more of a solitary venture. Yeah. You know, what you're talking about, and that's, you know, from what I've observed of musicians playing with each other, even, you know, through the pandemic. I mean, somebody said the other day, it wasn't, it's not about the fact that I've lost, you know, money or, you know, part or a big chunk of my career. It's just that I haven't been able to play with other people. Right. Play with other people. Right. I mean, you were playing out in, in South Dakota by yourself, but still you're probably hearing all kinds of stuff in your head and you're thinking about other people, like all those influences you were talking about, different, you know, different musicians that you were kind of thinking about as you played. So it's yeah. very collaborative. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, the, the live music thing is coming back slowly, hopefully, surely. Um, and hopefully it just snowballs into being more and more and we can go back on the road and bring music pe to people again. But up till this point, I've gotten to play with live musicians a handful of times. And each time it's just like, man, I miss this so much. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, 
yeah, making a solo record is an amazing experience and it really make, challenges yourself. But ultimately, it's just a joy to get to play with other people who are also trying to come up with something to be creative. Right. I I was really fortunate in high school when I didn't know jazz from anything to have some really a couple of really great teachers that showed showed me the way. And I I think it's an important life thing to to give back. Yeah. To to the next generation because they're going to need it, you know. Right. And 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 I was fortunate enough to to have some really great instruction. So. I try to give my students 110%. I ask a lot of them, but that's what it's going to take if they actually want to make a living in this in this music. It's really tough. So, so I try I try to help out as much as I can. And man, there, there's no better feeling in the world uh, except for when you see like a student that's really been working hard and, and their eyes light up because they finally get a concept you've been trying to work on with. It's a beautiful feeling. Um, so you and I have talked a little bit about, and we won't dwell on this, but we've talked a little bit about... Uh, um, uh, a fellowship at, at my high school, which is St. Paul's School, and, and trying to pursue that. And of course, through the pandemic, that uh, hasn't really happened, but it still could happen. So when I, I would imagine, I imagine what it would be like, and I told you that I had experience when I was there, and I was 16, 17 years old, of Dave Brubeck uh, and Joe Morello and, and Stan Getz coming to, you know, to um, the cold Concord, New Hampshire in the middle of winter, and then all 400 of us you know, just basically having this opportunity to become familiar with something that we, most of us were not familiar with, except with some of the guys who already, you know, were interested in jazz. What would it be like to assemble? Okay, pretend now you've got like 500, you know, students, and, and yet, and you're to bring to them, you know, something about what you and I have been talking about. Would that be something like rolling, rolling off a log for you? Would that be pretty easy to do? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know if, I mean, every crowd is different, obviously, right? Right. But, but I, you know, I, if I brought my my quartet with Matt Mitchell and Chris Lightcap and Dan Weiss, these guys know about every corner of of music and <laughs> history, right? Right. And saying so, we'll be playing my we'd be playing my tunes, and there would be something for every student there. Right. I, I think I think live music will never go away because there's something communicative, there's something spiritual, there's something social about music being performed for people who are actively listening and there's a wonderment and there's an excitement there. And that's why I got into music because yeah. I had never found anything that was quite as, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, enjoyable and brought people together as much as music. So, you know, and then we, you know, we would take questions and, and all four of us have, have done a ton of workshops, a ton of master classes. So I, I feel like we'd be down to do it. Count us in. <laughs> for me, as as a sixteen year old, it was uh, Dave Brubeck, and for a, a sixteen year old in in two thousand and twenty two, it would be uh, John Arabagon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we would just be trying to continue the the line of this great the, yeah. American art form. Well, we'll keep working on that, and we'll keep working on all this stuff. But John, it's it's really been a pleasure talking to you. Um, you know, you and I. Uh, uh, I'm sure we'll continue to to interact, and uh, you know you're going to be with you're going to be playing with the Hamptons Jazz Fest um, this summer, uh, which means that all uh, you guys out there you'll be able to uh, meet John and, and enjoy some of these people he's been talking about, and maybe even Ray Ray Anderson may be playing with you or whatever. Let's see what happens. I hope so. Put together, yeah. Well, thanks so much, John, and uh, we'll catch you soon. Um, don't go away. All right. All right. All right. Thanks, you take John. care, man. Okay. 
So the other thing I wanted to mention is John will be playing with probably that same quintet or maybe a different formulation um, in the Hamptons Jazz Fest this summer. The Hamptons Jazz Fest um, may be known to you now. This is an outgrowth of the jam session um, in, to some degree, but it's bringing jazz to all of us out here in the East End, mostly free concerts, upwards of 50 concerts um, over the rest of the summer, July, August, and September, various different venues. Uh, you can catch the schedule on HamptonsJazzFest.com uh, um, and uh, watch for it because it's going to be at the parish, it's going to be at the Southampton Art Center, Barron's Cove, uh, the Episcopal Church in Sag Harbor, the Church uh, Art Center in Sag Harbor, um, lots of different locations, some in Montauk. Uh, so um, this is going to be a great summer of jazz and we're very happy to be bringing it to you and we're very happy that John Arabagan and his group are going to be playing with us. So thanks for being with us uh, once again uh, in the jam session. We do we totally appreciate your uh, your interest in jazz, your interest in what we do, and your love of the music because we share it. So for the jam session radio hour, good night.